I am not your regularly scheduled speaker, I suppose you could say. My name is Pastor Stewart. I normally work with the youth here at Big Woods, 6th through 12th grade. Um, it's a great honor. It's a great challenge. Um, and it's something that I love to do. So I must today admit, today is an interesting day um, for our Big Woods pastors. Uh, Pastor Tim is over. I'm um, traveling in Israel. He just preached, actually, uh, seven hours ago this morning. There were a little, uh, couple hours ahead of us. And he's preparing for his son's wedding tomorrow. Pastor Aaron is traveling in Israel to some biblical sites. Must admit, I'm a little jealous when he's got the time. And finally, Pastor Josh has the hardest job of all trying to keep me in line. But in all honesty, I must admit and thank uh, Pastor Tim and the other elders. It's a phenomenal um, uh, burden, but also also privilege uh, to be preaching God's word here today. Um, We're here this morning as a church, as a body of believers, which have gathered together for the sake of honoring and worshiping the God of this universe and hearing his word. As a church, we've had considerable number of changes in this past year. We've had uh, new families join us, new families being created through marriage. Uh, We've had families being expanded by the birth of little ones in our body. As a church and individuals, we've suffered the loss um, of loved ones in this fallen world. As a church, we've had new pastors come on staff uh, to help with expanding the ministry into the community. Uh, We've had ministries rebuilt, expanded, and reworked. And shortly in a few months, we're going to be moving into a new building and tomorrow a new year. Yet with all these things, our goal here at Big Woods remains the same. To have an uncompromising focus on the transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. To share, to teach, and to preach it through, by, and in accordance to God's word. That's how I can stand here today, not as a young adult sharing some scattered opinions, but as a servant desiring to be faithful to his Lord's eternal word, to speak on his word and nothing else. Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, that you've just brought us here to get today, together as a body. Uh, Let us just take a pause from the world around us and and focus on your word, uh, to recognize its value, its uh, truthfulness, its sufficiency in our lives, and to humble ourselves to it. God, I pray that you guard my mouth, my tongue, uh, that I say nothing that is not in accordance with your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're tackling a section of, a section of scripture today in Revelation. Uh, why Revelation, you might ask. Uh, even with my youth ministry students, I love challenging them with sections of scripture that aren't, I would say, commonly used um, to understand and learn the value of scripture in its entirety. After all, 2 Timothy 3.16-17 says, All scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Even more so in Revelation 1.3 says, Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. The time is near. So without further ado, uh, let's flip to Revelation 2, uh, verses 1 to 7. It's a letter to Ephesus. And read that. It should be on your screens as well. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place, unless you repent. 
Yet this you have, you hit the Nicolaitans, which I hate also. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So as always, we need to understand and explain the text, um, and then we can apply the text, and particularly understanding it in relation to what it meant to the original audience. So first off, what is Ephesus and what was its church like? Ephesus was a large Greco-Roman city during this period along the western coast of what we would know today as modern-day Turkey. It was a wealthy city, actually, for its time, due to religious travel and also having a harbor. It had its own athletic training area, its own stadium, and a theater that right now we can recognize um, could sit approximately 20,000 people in its heyday. It was an epicenter for the region, for the practice of the Roman religion, as well as having significant number of temples, as well as the center for practicing magic. However, in a lot of ways, though, it was a morally bankrupt and corrupt city, even recognized by its own philosophers. The weeping philosopher Heraclitus said that its inhabitants were only fit to be drowned, and that the reason why he could never laugh or smile was because he lived amongst, lived amongst such terribly uncleanness. He wasn't talking about uncleanness in regards to soap and water, uh, but the moral corruptness which existed within the city. Its people and church are actually mentioned numerous times um, in Scripture. Ephesus was first visited by the Apostle Paul during his third missionary journey in Acts 18 and 19. He was actually visited more than once there. His longest stay was over two and a half years long. So his ministry was quite extensive. Acts 19.10 talks about his ministry, saying that it continued so that all the residents of Asia heard the words of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Even more so, his ministry was not without fruit. Later in the chapter, a number of new believers come forward and burn uh, their magic books, equal to approximately 50,000 pieces of silver. In today's currency, that'd be about $6 million worth of books that were burned. We can conclude there is a significant church beginning in Ephesus at this time. Ten years later, Paul writes the book of Ephesians to this church, the letter focusing on the redemptive work of God in Christ, unity within the church, and proper conduct within both the church and the home. Jumping back to Revelations. Uh, this letter was written several years after the book of Ephesians, Almost 20 years had passed since Paul had actually first visited the city. The church now has a significant number of believers um, within the church itself that are likely a new generation of Christians, second generation Christians, you could say. And they've lived in this morally bankrupt and corrupt society through this time. Christianity has begun to spread in the Roman Empire, but at the same time, uh, we have the rise of false teaching and heresies as well. So let's break down the text step by step, verse by verse. Uh, verse 1. To the angel for the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In all likelihood, these angels they're talking about, both in this letter and the remaining letters to the different churches, are likely not actual angels. Um, angels function in scripture as messengers, not the receiver of messages. Most likely this is either someone representing the church, such as the pastor of the church of Ephesus, or a personification or an image of the church entirely. In either case, this letter is addressed to the church as a whole. The words of him, mentioned in verse 1, um, refer to Christ, or most directly, particularly directly from him. This is similar to a fact that we see in the Old Testament as, thus says the Lord. So we can see that these words are directly from Christ himself. Finally, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That states that Christ protects and holds these seven stars, being the churches and is present with these churches. The stars being the churches themselves and the lampstands being their witness, their influence 
or ministry in the church and the cities they represent. Verses 2 and 3, we're really getting to like the meat of the section. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Remember, the church of Ephesus lived in a corrupt society, but this church had not given in to what was around it. it lists, it's listed as having endurance. Their toil, their work is mentioned in this passage. Bearing for Christ's name, and they have not grown weary. They have stood strong against the corrupting influence of the culture around them. Even more challenging, uh, they've faced evil from those who claim to be from God, but are no more than false teachers. They have tested them and found them to be false. Remember, this is 20 years after Paul first visited the city, and likely 35 to 40 years after the death of Christ. False apostles and false teaching have spread even this short period and were common in the years leading up to the writing of Revelation. False apostles and teachers were known for taking both financial advantage of those they misled for selfish gain. This was warned of in the letters to the Corinthians, as well as leading individuals away from the recognition that Christ had come in the flesh, which was warned of in 1 John. Um, this is not a minor issue but it challenged the foundation of Christianity. If Christ had not come in the flesh, honestly, what are we doing here this morning? If he had not come, there would be no forgiveness of sins. This was an attack at the very basis of Christianity. Your first point today um, is the church of Ephesus faced moral challenges, or sorry, doctrinal challenges. Church of Ephesus faced doctrinal challenges, but they stood firm. They did not tolerate false teaching. They did not go along with the culture. Nor did they bear with the evil of those who did. They endured patiently against the culture, even as it grated against that which they knew to be true in Christ. Verses 4 and 5. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove the lampstand from its place, unless you repent. The church of Ephesus is not without blemish, though. They're not perfect. Um, it talks about them abandoning the love they had at first, or in other translations, you'll see forsaking of the first love. So what is this love they're talking about? Uh, a first assumption would be Mark twelve twenty nine to 31. Jesus was asked famously, what, what is the greatest commandment, teacher? And he gave two answers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is reinforced by 1 John 4.20. Remember, 1 John first and 2 John, as well as Revelation, are written by the same Apostle John. It says, if anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. We can presume that this love is for both God and for others. These two loves in Scripture, loving God and loving others, are, are intertwined, you could say. If we love God, that love is naturally going to outflow to those around us. And we can't truly love others without our love for God. They are called to remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The church of Ephesus was called to remember who they were before knowing Christ, where they had been before knowing Christ. 
in regards to our love for others. How can I, for example, look down and not love someone um, who's having trouble or believing or even loudly rejecting Christ when that is exactly where I came from myself, where that is exactly my own past? We need to remember from where we've come. Finally, what are these works they did at first? Ephesians 1.15 gives us a little bit of a hint as Paul directly commends the elders of the church um, for their love toward all saints. Your second point is the church of Ephesus had faded in its love for Christ and others. Its love for Christ and others had faded. This is not a minor issue, but one which must be corrected for the sake of the church, and even more so for those outside of the church in Ephesus. This must be corrected or else they will lose their lampstand, its ability to witness, its ability to show Christ to those who do not know him. The Apostle John um, is in summary calling them to repent of their lack of love, to remember the love they once had, the love they once did, and to return to loving God and others as they were called to. Verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I'll be honest, our modern-day knowledge of the Nicolaitans is, is rather slim. Um, they were a heretical sect. They had broken away from Christianity. They were, their doctrine, I guess you could say, had changed. And who were viewed in connection with Balaam, um, referenced in Revelation 2.14. Balaam is an Old Testament teacher um, who advised the rival king of Israel to corrupt Israel through idolatry and sexual sin. Historical sources... Um, connect the Nicolaitans to both temple prostitution, um, using prostitutes as a form of worship, as well as idolatry. In either case, they're a significant threat, morally both to the church as well as to its believers, having the potential to lead them away from God and ruining their witness in the community. The church of Ephesus faced moral challenges. The third point, the church of Ephesus faced moral challenges. However, from the text, we can see that the church stood strong against this. They didn't just merely limit. They didn't just merely resist. They stood strongly and hated those sins as Christ did. That's a high compliment. They did not allow themselves to slide into this idolatry or to slide into the sexual sins, but passionately hated those as Christ did. Finally, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. If they conquer, conquering not in the sense of physical warfare, but of spiritual warfare, if they continue in faithfulness, if they grow in faithfulness, they will eat of the tree of life, meaning they will have everlasting life and banishment of death and sin, as well as be in paradise, be in the presence of God. So now that we've read and we've understood the text, how can this letter to a church almost 2,000 years ago help us today? I would say we must test and challenge our doctrine, both in our life and in the culture around us. We live in a culture which, as the Ephesians did, is not living in accordance with the biblical worldview. They faced opposition from both outside of their own church and the culture. Even more so, false teachers compounded this threat within the church, we still face both today. If I had to pick on the, the, probably the greatest doctrinal challenge in our society today, um, it is probably, I'd say, the veracity, the truthfulness, and the sufficiency. Is Scripture enough of the Bible? 
the culture pushes in challenging, how can we believe in a 2,000-year book? How, how can we believe in this old book giving us answers to life today? It questions the historical authenticity of the books, their legitimacy, their authorship, and any other aspect that can possibly be challenged. Even now, within those who claim to be part of the church, individuals and sometimes even pastors have questioned the sufficiency of Scripture. Is the Bible really enough? Do we need to start teaching from something else or pulling from other material? Or should we really even teach this old book? In the face of these, we must stand as the Ephesians did, with endurance. To hold faithfully and passionately to the word of God as true, as sufficient, and as we know it to be breathed out by God himself. We must challenge and correct those who teach the Bible to be anything short of God's word. and something we need to put our whole faith in. We in today's culture still face our own moral challenges. Idolatry and sexual sin are, are still challenges today as they were with the Ephesians, just maybe in a different way. In place of Roman idolatry, we have the idols of self and individualism in the Western world. Rather than worshiping God in his proper place as the Lord of our life, we left our own opinions, our own wants, our own preferences on a pedestal to live our life like a Burger King slogan. Have it your way. We worship ourselves ignoring the God of this universe and anything our hearts desire. Sexual sin is still a dangerous snare, even if there is no longer temple prostitution. I'm not referring to the LGBT revolution or anything else we want to pick on, um, but maybe when we look at pornography use within the church, when we look at infidelity not only in the act of adultery itself, but adultery of the heart and lusting after others, or the ever-sliding bar in dating, how far is too far. We must face and stand firm against the moral challenges of the day, which both the church of Ephesus and we continue to face, to not only merely limit or resist, but to hate the sin as God does himself. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, we must love God and others. We cannot, 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 I can't say that enough, uh, forget our love for God and others. If we forget our love for God, um, honestly, what good are we here? A stale group of individuals who follow something out of a sense of duty. A slightly odd social club that meets Sunday mornings. At least we have coffee. But I mean, what's the point of being here um, if we don't love God and others? Our love for God is absolutely foundational to anything we do within the church. And even within our own lives. If we forget our love for God, man, what do we have left? Jesus stated crystal clearly the greatest commandment is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love, to devote, to give every aspect of ourselves and our lives to him is the very least we can do for what he has done for us. Anything short of that just, just doesn't make the mark. If we forget our love for others, how can we possibly be effective witnesses for Christ? Our love for those in our own body shows that we're followers of Christ. John thirteen thirty five, By this all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Imagine the people of Castanier kind of looking at our body and being like, you know, they're always taking my parking spot Sunday morning. But there's something different about them, and I want to know it. If we love each other as the way we're called to, people would take notice. And if we love each other within the church as Christ calls us, it's not going to stop there. It's, man, something's different about them, and I want to know what it is. 
If we love others outside of the church, it's a little more difficult now, as Christ calls us to. People are going to want to know him. I'll give you all a little bit of a heads up. Um, the building that we're constructing across the river is really not for any of you. I'll be honest. It's not. Um, if you're here, if you're in this building, um, it's not for you. Yeah, we're going to go into it. We're going to use it. Um, but it's not for you. We could stay in this building and make it work. I mean, we're, we're a little packed in today, but we can squeeze in every day. We've got overflow. Uh, the youth ministry can squeeze into the room it's in now. The children's men with kids running every possible different direction back there could stay where they are. We could continue ministries as we have them right now. We can make everything work if it's just us. But here's the thing. We don't want it to be just us. We want to be a witness. We want to not forsake our love for others. We want to have room for them. That's why we're building a new building across the river um, for us to move into. It's, it's, it's not for us. It's for everyone who's outside of this room right now, outside of this building, that we want to not forget our love for and to continue our witness to them. The Church of Ephesus was called to resist the moral and doctrinal corruption of the culture and to not neglect nor forget its love for God and others. I pray that we continue in that calling today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, for the blessings that you've given us in your word. Thank you so much uh, for what your son has done and just for who you are. The fact that you want to have a relationship with us, um, sinful people, amazes me every time. God, as we move forward from out of here, um, I pray that we stand as the church of Ephesus did, uh, facing the challenges of the culture, um, whether moral or doctrinal, um, staying tight to your word and loving others and God as we're called to, and that we never forget those two things. In your name we pray. Amen.